the scene was dead anyway. A music scene lives, a music scene dies. The stories, however, are immortal. The scene was dead anyway is a look into the lives, communities and music scenes that help shape an entire generation. To the scene was dead anyway. I'm your host Rick Walland. This is episode number nine, and today I'm joined by my good pal Nat Mason, aka Stuart Pierce. Welcome to the show, Nat Mason, aka Stuart Pierce. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Rick. Good to see your face again, man. Good to see your face, man. You're looking great. Dressed up for the occasion. Ah. Uh, so tell me a bit about yourself. Give us a little uh who is Nat Mason? Uh, what do you do? Um, what what kind of stuff do you play? What's your uh forte? I'm Nat Mason, I'm thirty years old. I've been playing saxophone for nearly twenty years. Um that's taken me through various different musical kind of forms over the years. Uh, I also had keyboard lessons for a bit, and then I taught myself like bass, playing along to Motown records, and taught myself guitar from playing folk music. So I've had like a pretty wide history when it comes to like getting into music. Yeah, I've played a few different things. Yeah. Um, currently, my big obsession is synthesizers. I don't know if you could hear that. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. Excellent. Um, I've been kind of buying a lot of old synths and like shifting them and like never kind of owning um for much longer than a few months yeah and i don't know it, it's just inspiring me to do like a lot of different things and then i get bored quickly so i'll move on to another one so you grew up in see I, i'm not totally sure about this you did you grow up in hucknall you were born and raised uh, in hucknall not necessarily so i i'll I was brought up in a village called Bestwood Village, as made famous by D.H. Lawrence in one of his novels, I think Sons and Lovers. Um, it's just a small mining village. There was one shop, and if I ever wanted to go and do something fun, I'd come to Hucknall. It was about, I don't know, 25, 30-minute walk. There and back, pretty much five nights a week when I was a teenager. And then I ended up moving to Manchester to go to uni. And then I spent some time there. Then I moved to the Netherlands. And then after saying all my life, I would never, ever move back to Nottingham. I didn't even move back to Nottingham. I moved back to Hucknall. <laughs> and that's not to do it down. Like, you know, I love this place. But, like, um, I did not expect it at the time. So let's go back to your, your earlier life. So did you start... When did you start listening to music and, and who were your sort of idols and inspirations early on? Uh, well, I think the first CD I ever bought was the Grease soundtrack when I was seven, because I think it was the 20th anniversary of Grease. That's that's pretty, pretty important if you're going to get a gauge on that. No, it's not. <laughs> um, I remember first really getting into the music of like 
minor threat and hardcore punk when i was about 12 like this was all due to the like early internet and you know like when you'd have forums where you don't really know you don't see any pictures of anybody or anything like you know it's just completely fucking kind of you know separate people like bonding over the internet but like i don't know i found out about minor threat um rights of spring and like i got into all of that kind of stuff i thought i was straight edge for a bit that's nah then you had um, your, then you down a bottle of bells or something and that was the end of that oh there's a few stories <laughs> about me downing bells and <laughs> not fit for the air um, <laughs> that's another podcast yeah. <laughs> um, so I remember getting into them, but like my parents always listened to music. Like, uh, we had a, a videotape that Dad taped off the telly of um, Yellow Submarine, the Beatles animation film. I must have worn that out, man. I, I better watched it like six hundred times over the fucking years. Like, I think Beatles were a inf- big influence for a lot of people, aren't they? Like, <clears throat> maybe like as, especially like as a and... child. Obviously, the Beatles are great, but like the Beatles with really bright in your face colours and animation style that looks oh, like yeah. nothing else. Yeah. Like, it, it just really kind of, you know, got me thinking about music and how much I like it and enjoy it and stuff. Um, when I took up saxophone, I actually took up saxophone because I was, I was really into ska music. I've not listened to ska in a very long time. So, like, so initially you were into it, but now you detest it. I won't say detest, <laughs> but like I just, it's a bit irritating to listen to. It's not my all, cup all of tea. Yeah. It's not stuff. my cup of tea, and it's not your cup of tea by the looks of it. Yeah. <laughs> um. So that was like your less than Jake and real big fish and all of that stuff. But yeah. um, my my mum got a list of saxophone teachers because I was like. I'm, I'm, I tried the drums, like, didn't stick with it. Tried guitar lessons, didn't stick with it. So I said to Mum, Mum, I love saxophones. I'm a scar man. I'm going to play the saxophone. Buy me a saxophone, please. Yeah. And, you know, bless her, she did. But um, I didn't have a teacher at the time. And they didn't do it at school or anything. Um, so my mum... My mum was a teacher at the time, and she was asking around, and like she got this list of like saxophone teachers in Nottingham, and I, honestly, there was a list of like twenty names, and I just picked the one that sounded the weirdest because it was Jan Kapinski, and I'd never heard a Polish name like Kapinski before. Wait a minute, wait, and, is this back in? Where's this now? We're talk, talking. What this, year was this? This is in Bestwood Village, like two thousand and one. And well, this is Jan Kapinski, who was, wasn't he, a, he was a tutor at Salford. Yeah, he's the reason I went to Salford. Oh, I didn't know this. Wow, okay. Brain. But like, wow. Ex- well, so so <laughs> you know who Jan Kapinski is. Yeah, like, I didn't not, know that he was your everybody. tutor when like, you Basically, he was this mad, crazy Polish-British guy who's into really out there free jazz and improvisation, and it it's fucking mad. But basically, like, he was my first and only saxophone teacher from the age of 11 until I finished uni because he still taught at uni. Wow. I didn't know that, that he was 
like so he was living around there i guess or is he from like he was just living around there yeah, and he, he was teaching yeah he lives not too far <clears> from here about five six miles wow there you go so i mean that does lead us to the later on about why you decided to move to manchester and that explains a lot then so i've Jan... never lived in manchester mate no well you know okay i've, I've lived Sorry. seven years in salford, <laughs> salford. And about nine months in oldham but never manchester yeah, but you you spent obviously you spend a lot of time in Manchester because absolutely so close to that place, man. So about Jan then, so you were having lessons early on. So you said about two thousand and one. So you would have yeah. Been... So so basically, like for the first year, it was me learning the rudiments. You know, like how to blow and get a noise like properly the same each time. And then once I'd learned like you know a few scales. Um, a couple of like you know silly songs the pink panther or fucking you know like flintstones theme tune or something like he got me into improvising so we'd have like cds like you'd be able to buy this book of sheet music with a cd at the back and that's got the backing tracks on and like you know you can play along there's a nice head melody to play and then there's like a space for improvisation so like basically after about a year of learning the rudiments he just started like letting me off the leash and just like, come on, let's make some noise and, you know, like, let's see where you can put these scales into practice and like, you know, start playing with a lot more feeling. And I've not really looked back from there, to be honest. So how, how old would you have been? This is what, like 19 years ago. So, so I started in oh. 2001. Um, Sorry, 20 years ago. I completely forgot it's 2021. Like we lost a year last year. That's, um... <laughs> so, yeah, sorry, carry on. Um, Where next? So you must have been, yeah, how old would roughly you would have been? <clears throat> I was 11 when I 11. took up saxophone. Um, yeah. You know, start my lessons with Jan. Eventually, I went through and I did uh, an A level in music. It's all right. I learned how to write a bark chorale, which has made me able to like write good, um, you know, like string quartets or like moving kind of harmonies and stuff. If you want, like, you know, a nice rhythmic backing on strings or horns or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So you got a um, bit of music theory. Uh, oh yeah, um, I know my shit when it comes to music theory. Like, I, I, th I think it's important to know because, like, if you don't know your theory, I don't know how do you put it. It's like you you might get things right, like you know, four times out of twenty, like just pure good luck. But like, if if you actually know, like, where you're headed and like. The, the way that you get there in terms of a melody line or a set chords, cadences. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I'd, I'd recommend everybody learn music theory if you want to be a serious musician. Obviously would have helped you massively when you applied for uh, university. But what about, uh, so a bit getting into your mid-teens, mm. were, were you playing in uh, any bands uh, early on? <laughs> 15, 16 oh, yes, years they... old. Tell me about I, that. I, I started my first band when I was either like 12 or 13 with my cousin, Josh. Um, 
what were we called? I think like squanky jello, we were called. <laughs> we were like really fucking, you know, stupid punk, like rubbish. I was playing either bass or guitar. Um, Bet you were having a fucking great time though. Bet you just like... Yeah, just silly songs. Like we did one where I'd bang on a cowbell and the other guy would chuck out like fucking, what they call Milky Ways to the crowd and shit. I don't know. We, we we weren't really taking it seriously. Yeah. But um, like we we started because Notts County Council had this wonderful service called um, Eleventh Session, and basically every Saturday morning from like ten till I don't know about like two in the afternoon, like um they'd open this school, the Brunt School in Mansfield, and it was a music school, and there was loads of instruments there. There was like they paid for teachers to come in and run like several different sessions. Oh, nice. Like, the best bit was if you could set up a drum kit and an amplifier, like, you could just, like, start a band and rehearse in, like, this school classroom somewhere. Oh, wicked. In the middle of Mansfield. Um, So that eventually evolved into, like, taking shit seriously. We started playing mostly covers. Um, Stuff I was listening to at the time, like MC5, Patti Smith. Uh, I think we tried a New York Dolls song. Um, Then eventually I I think I got into like Northern Soul and I was like, I really want to play some Northern Soul songs. So the guitarist quit because he was like proper punk. I'm a punk with a mohawk kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. Old school. (laughs) Traditional. That that was always like guitar. And like it got to a point where I kind of like resented the saxophone a bit. it wasn't particularly a cool instrument to play when you were at school. Like mm. all the guys played like drums, and guitar, they're kind of sexy instruments, but like a saxophone, I don't know. It just felt a bit dorky at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I did a level music, as I said, played like a jazz set towards the end of it um, for like my final performance. I've I've listened to it back. Like it, it wasn't very good to be honest. I tried like playing one Ornette Coleman song, which is just bass, saxophone, and drums. So by the nature of not having like a, a chordal instrument there, like I thought, okay, this is an excuse to play like free jazz and like start exploring different tonalities. Um, you know, like different kind of rhythmic phrasing, different melodies, harmonies and stuff. But like, it, it just sounded like a... <laughs> kind of shit. <laughs> which, which, since I've learned how to do that kind of squawking kind of shit, like, that's the stuff that's got me lots of, like, gigs and bands. Well, uh, later on in your life, it proved to be valuable um, mm. skill. Um did you go to any any start going to shows and that and <clears throat> playing some gigs then in yeah uh, Bestwood Village the, and around there? Mansfield had a venue, um, the Town Mill it were called, not been open for years. Um, we used to get some bands come that were all right play there. Um, we played like as part of this eleventh session I think, like um at the end of the year they did like a showcase or something like that i don't know but i, I remember playing there in fact the, 
for our first ever gig, me and my cousin, first ever gig we ever played, um, our drummer couldn't make it and didn't let us know until the day. So like, <laughs> we met this guy called, I think it was Daryl, like just in the crowd, and I got talking to him. And I was like, Can you play drums? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, like the the songs were shambolic anyway, so like we figured it would just like it made perfect sense. <laughs> and how did it go? Oh, we were awful, proper action, <laughs> man. <laughs> oh, that's great. But yeah, I, I didn't play too many gigs. We had a Clipston Miners Welfare. I played one of my first gigs there. That was pretty cool. Um, it, it was a big hall. Like you could easily fit about I don't know a thousand, two thousand people in there. But like. If there wasn't that many, there was like about fucking fifty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a bit, a bit later, um, I can't remember when did you actually move to move up north, further north, anyway, to Salford. Uh, two thousand and eight. Two thousand eight. Finished my A levels in the summer of two thousand and eight, and then I moved up in September. And so it was Salford. Jan, your your teacher, um, saxophone teacher. He he basically said yeah this course is great i mean what did he say how did he it, sell it, it to you he just said that like it's a good popular course music um he teaches there still and at the time when you apply for uni i was what like 17 like all, all i cared about was like you know just music the bands i was listening to and like you know i had a book called uh, please kill me it's like the tales of CBGBs and all the punk oh, scene yeah. from like, well, it started with like MC5 and Stooges and then it goes all the way up to like, you know, the fucking mid 80s or whatever. Anyway, it was it was cool. I was into all of that kind of shit. Yeah. Um, so I moved up to Manchester. I had, a, I had a room at, what was it, John Lester? No, Eddie Coleman. Eddie Coleman Court. And I could touch the walls with like both arms. So no that was like the was in my room. One of the student it was like accommodation. A fucking horrible L shape. Oh, it was so shit, man. Yeah. I felt like a monk living <laughs> in a fucking cell. <laughs> one of the many luxurious student accommodations provided for um, uh, students uh, during their studies at the University of Salford. So yes, you 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 did. You did this famous course that all my guests seem to have done as well. <laughs> <laughs> Popular music or at recording. Least tried. <laughs> yeah. So go on. Let, let, let's hear it. What? How was? How was it for you then? I, I loved it. Yeah. I, I bloody love uni. I've met some of the best people. <laughs> I want to go back. Um, <laughs> and, you know, like I'd, I'd literally just gone straight from school college to university no gap just straight through i'd only ever lived in one house in bestwood village and then all of a sudden i'm in like not quite like the city center but like you know close enough to the city center of manchester that i could walk it if needs be yeah and living a with a load of people that i've never met before so it was a how how was that for you initially? Pretty uh, intense. Uh, I've, I met one of my best mates on the first day, Bob. 
Like, I still see him, talk to him every now and then. That's pretty cool. Um, I've met lots of people on my course. Don't talk to many of them now, but, like, mm. you know, that's okay. Like, that's absolutely yeah. fine. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I, I was sold by... Um, Mum saw in the Daily Mirror that uh, Johnny Marr was being made a, a visiting professor at Salford <laughs> Uni for the popular music course. And, like, that was just before I started. So I was figuring, like, great, we're going to have, like, weekly lectures from fucking Johnny Marr. Like, you know, I wasn't a huge Smiths fan, but, like, fucking, I realised they were a great fucking band and ended up living on fucking Coronation Street where they filmed that, that video where they're all on the bikes. Obviously, um, the the, fam- the famous picture as well in front of the in front of the, uh, in the lads, lads club. club. Yeah. Yes, mate. Um, so how we, how did you feel in your first sort of year, like when you're living there and and kind of the course and yeah, obviously you for, met... for three months. I felt like completely overwhelmed, um, which is something I've done like in lots of times when I've been put in a new situation like I tend to get overwhelmed and like fucking anxious and stuff mm. um, but after I like so I I think do you remember doing musicology mm-hmm. yeah I remember going into a musicology lesson um, and it was just it gave you like fucking loads of reading to do um, it was all about like philosophers and fucking stuff that I'd never heard about or never cared about. Um, and then like you had to write all of these papers and do like a test at the end of term one. And I just thought like, I am not getting this. What the fuck is going on? This is crazy. We had to buy this like horrible orange textbook. Um, I think most people struggled with that side of the course. Like what, but here's, here's the thing, like, I just remember, like, fucking writing a lot of notes and, like, actually doing revision for the first time in my life. I ended up getting 100% on the test. Oh, it was you. You were the 100% guy. Yes, mate. <laughs> Everyone used to talk about you, like, oh, this guy got 100%. I was like, how, the, how did he swing that? How can you get 100% on anything? Do you know what I mean? It's like... And, and- I've basically since then, like, I fucking loved it. I've loved, like, you know, looking into theory, looking into philosophy, um, you know, the real academic study of music. Like, that's that's been a huge so interest. for those who don't know, what is musicology? How would you describe it? Um... Uh, the academic study and then really long, boring essays written about music. Yeah. So like things like semiotics and ideological state apparatus. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what what I did for my dissertation in the end was the westernization of Persian classical music, because in our library we had lots of um, kind of what would be called like ethnomusicology. Um, like academic texts about people who've been into certain cultures and like explored how culture is manifest through the music of that particular culture. Yeah. Um, I just thought my tutors never, 
ever going to have had a paper written about Persian classical music. So, like, that's got to give me brownie points. Ended up getting, like, a first for it. I did fucking really well and stuff. I haven't listened to Persian classical music since. Not in the slightest. (laughs) (laughs) I love it, man. This so so we we talked a little bit about um, one of the tutors. Uh, I don't mind naming him Tim France, and uh, you had you had a little story. You told me what something that happened a little kind of oh yeah, I guess coming together with with him, which he had many with a lot of people. I, th- I think this was another thing that kind of like you know was contributing to that anxiety. This was like within one of the first couple of weeks. Um, we used to have like music theory lessons with everybody in, um, everyone who's on the course or like half the course, I don't know. Um, and I don't know, it was at the start of the session and he was talking off about something and he mentioned the Beatles and like, you know, I think somebody like scuffed or whatever, you know, everyone's fucking cocky at that age. Like, (laughs) Um, but he was like, you know, talking, you know, who likes the Beatles, you know, and then he looked at me and like said, what do you think of the Beatles first album? And bear in mind, my dad is a Beatles fanatic. Like I've, I've already watched fucking Yellow Submarine 600 odd times, but like dad's got every single album catalogued, every single LP, uh, EP, seven inch all like first editions catalogued fucking stored away nicely we've had the beatles around me all my life my dad even looked like paul mccartney on the cover of let it be <laughs> and it's called paul <laughs> there you go. um but the first album it's just a load of like second string covers like done in a mersey beat style like it's not particularly innovative like you know i, I love like um Sergeant Pepper's era and Revolver and like the Yellow Submarine soundtrack, like that's my kind of Beatles. If we're if we're really going, I just said like I think I think it's a bit rubbish. Like I've you know a bit unoriginal on his part. Like he just looked at me and in the most condescending tone said, "Oh well, you're never going to get anywhere with that attitude, are you?" <laughs> and. You know, I, I was devastated, like, and a bit stunned, even though I tried to, like, you know, fucking bite my lip and, like, you know, oh, I'm proud, fuck you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, I soon realised that, like, I'd chosen, perf- was it Pathway A, the, like, doing performing as opposed to doing any recording. Session musicianship, yeah. Um, I was a saxophone player. He was on, like, the person who was going to be grading me because he played saxophone. So it wasn't going to be any of the other like performance tutors who could grade me. Oh yeah. I just realised at that point, like, this is going to be difficult. I'm not sure, like, I've got the chops that he's wanting. Yeah. Like, yeah. Unless it's Steely Dan, he does not give a shit, and I <laughs> fucking hate Steely Dan with an absolute passion. He actually has a band called, a, like a tribute band, doesn't he? Or a cover band, or what you're going to call it, called Neely, Neely Dan. Neely Dan. And, and all of it, just like in case he does ever listen to this, I don't bear him any ill will or anything. No, we don't like, bear him any ill will, Tim. I'd happily have a pint with you and catch up if you ever want to, Tim Prant. 
But like that was the point. <laughs> that that was like the trigger that made me realise like I'm not really going to be like a professional performing musician. Like I I just I can sense it. Like I've, you're going to have to play on cruise ships, playing the same shit songs every three nights of the week. Yeah, and I know well, like you've done the function band. I know like Tom's been on the. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, he talked about that how it becomes like really soul destroying. Like he was getting really fed up, like after you know, a couple of months of it playing and to like, I, same I was songs never gonna just... like a, a jazz session musician or anything. Um, I can't be asked to practice that much. I used to practice like you know an hour a day, like back in the day. But like you know, if you want to be serious, if you want to be John Coltrane or fucking you know, like any of these legends of music, you can have to train fucking, I don't know, eight hours a day, never take the fucking saxophone out your gob. Yeah. I, I, I didn't have time for that. Like, I was doing other things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to the... Drank, uh... a, lot. Drank a lot of you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I do remember he used to say to me, uh, he used to say to us, uh, practice three, three hours a day. You must practice three hours a day. You know, that is the bare minimum. And like I did, I did take it on board, and it made me a much better drummer. And um, yeah, he had it. He had his way of doing things, and you know, uh, he was a talented. He's a talented musician, and I just feel oh, like shit, sometimes yeah. amazing skill at the saxophone. Yeah, he is. But he's he is. playing music that I have absolutely zero interest or joy from. Yeah, but I feel like he he was. Yeah, I don't want to start slagging off and all that, but it felt like he had a bit of a chip on his shoulder. And, you know... I don't know about that. I think he just liked what he liked. And, like, he, he could get over, like, not liking the particular music, like, if it was really, really, really technically good. But I'm I'm not that kind of player. I'm a, not sloppy, but, like, I'm a bit hmm. out there. Yeah, it just feels like you need to be more accommodating if you're going to be a... A tutor on a on a popular music course uh, and not because it felt like he was very rigid in in what he considered to be good music or you know proficient music you know but this is the problem with with art in a, in a kind of university setting isn't it it's like how do you objectively assess an art form you know how do you do it you can't do it because art That's is subjective my pay grade mate yeah, uh, so I mean, other than that, tell me uh, what what did you enjoy about it? Let's let's sell this course to. Uh, what what did I enjoy? Course, I, guys. I got to meet yeah. like some incredible <laughs> friends. Same, um, same, yeah. In, including your good self. Yeah. Um, we met through there. Um, I got to play in lots of bands. I got to meet loads of people just from being in Manchester and Salford that I would have otherwise never met. Again, some like friends for life. Um, there's some cheap pubs. <laughs> <laughs> when I used to live in High Broughton and we had a pub at the back of our garden and it was like a, an urban cooperative owned by the local community. So it was like two pound a pint. Oh, nice. <sighs> So when is this around the time that you, you, you joined, this is where you met uh, David, David Jackson. Um, yeah. Shout out to my man, 
Big Dave. <laughs> Big Dave. Um, um, so his, his band Salford Media Cities. This is you. You joined up and. Yeah, I met him in like two thousand and twelve, or maybe the end of two thousand and eleven. Um, no, sorry. Two thousand and nine. Two thousand and nine. Second year of uni. Like Dave used to invite us over to his flats. Now, if you on like the main street by the universities in Salford, you'll be able to see his flats because it's one of them like big tower blocks that are there. Yeah, yeah, um, sort of near, next to the Islington Mill, just to the left Yeah, next bit. to the Islington Mill. Yeah. But like we'd turn up and just like sit in his living room at like 12 o'clock on a Sunday. There'd be like six of us. We had my mate Phil, who was just playing like a snare drum and we had like a contact mic on a lamp that I'd just kind of like thwack a bit. Uh, David play a bit of guitar. I'd play saxophone. Um, Sadie would play bass, and uh, oh, what's his name? Booker's. Booker's would play like guitar, and we'd just make a racket for like fucking <laughs> about four hours. We like got no end of complaints, and after about two months, we decided like let's start rehearsing in like an actual studio. Um, so we got a, a room at what was it called Brunswick Mill? Is that yeah. is that a thing? Brunswick, Brunswick Mill? Mill. Let's see. Uh, it was called EXR, but now I think it's it's called something else. But yeah, it's a huge mill up uh, in Manchester, sort of. Ancoats um, way. Ancoats. Um, it's used by other businesses, but there's a big rehearsal rehearsal room space in there. And um, yeah, and that was great fun. Like it was a pretty big room. So the band just kind of like grew and grew and grew. Like it it was net it was a very fluid lineup kind of at the time. Like there'd always be Dave and Sadie. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I, I was like the you know, just below them in terms of fucking hierarchy and shit. But like we had like a pool of three or four guitarists that we'd like pick for from for whatever gig. Um Everybody played percussion. Um, <laughs> we went through a few different like iterations of like not having a real drum kit before settling on. Let's actually have a real drum kit. <laughs> also have lots of other people, some just like banging a, a like a floor tom and playing it with maracas and shit. Um, but yeah, like we we were a noisy bunch. There wasn't much like. Um, progression in the songs they'd usually be kind of loop based um, mm. I say like loop not like you know on a so sample it or something improvised like or a band were... looping over one riff for quite a oh, long okay, time yeah. I guess a bit bit like the fall how they'd have like what, it's kind yeah, of a me, bit of a drone mate Graham, like a... Graham came to see us um, who used to be in 808 state and you know it's just like that's blown me away a bit. It was like hearing two different lineups of the fall from two different decades playing on the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, the fall. Of I, probably... I fucking hated the fall at the time. Oh really? Like, I'd, oh, I'd, I'd, like, <laughs> I hadn't really listened to him much, to be to be honest. Yeah. Uh, it took me to leave Manchester before I actually like discovered him properly. To appreciate appreciate their stuff. Yeah. So o- overall, what was your? I mean, 
what was how was it being in the band and and like how many how many gigs did you did did you play in um, any standout shows? Imagine being one of two drivers in like an eight or nine piece band. Right. Okay. Heavy work. Man, you were always there at the end doing the loadout. Or if it were a local gig, like I could go back the next day with a hangover and go and collect up, lift a drum kit up several flights of stairs and then down again. <laughs> um, they were good times. I, I really enjoyed that band. Um, yeah, I've, I've got no like particularly bad memories. Um, is there any shows that stand out? Any any uh, any shows that stand out that you can remember that you were like that was that was fucking awesome. Uh, I remember doing bonfire nights, and I'm not going to say who, and it wasn't me, but like some people were on acid, playing at this house party in Chorlton, Didsbury, I don't know, somewhere like that, and like that. That was pretty like wild. I was really hammered, um, but like there was nearly electrocutions on stage and fucking... <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, <laughs> crazy night. But it was crazy in a in a kind of good way, chaotic. I I don't know if we sounded good. I could never hear what we were playing. To be honest, it was hard enough to hear myself. <laughs> like a big wall of throbbing sound. Yeah, just a sonic, sonic assault. Yeah. Um, but I guess um, you were you're in that band from 2009 to 2014. Mm -hmm. Mostly playing sax, and um, a bit later, so a bit after this, you did actually end up joining um, a Sunra tribute band. Yes, mate. Um, this would that's... be your next project after Self Immunity. I'd, I'd say that's probably my most successful project that I've ever been a part of musically. Um, we ended up getting played on Six Music at the wrong speed, somehow. <laughs> I think it was Gideon Coe. He ended up like encoding the WAV in a different way or something, or I don't know. So what did it? Speed it way, up like, or slow it down? No, it slowed it down by about like fifteen BPM. Oh. Like it sounded fucking weird. Going out live on six music, we didn't sound like. This. You're like this is our moment, and some guys <laughs> like you had one job. <laughs> but yeah, that that was a that was a fantastic band with some fucking brilliant musicians. Um, so what the name of the band? The I I always forget it because it's quite long. The part time. Part of me. Not that one. <laughs> <laughs> Part-time heliocentric cosmodrama after school club brackets Saturn Lancashire brackets. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I did actually manage to. I think I got to one or two shows, um, and uh, it was a visual and sonic experience. Um, yeah, that. So that came about because um, fantastic musician from Manchester, Paddy Steer, who Paddy Steer, you should yeah. all see live when live music happens again maybe you can get uh, on the show we'll see <laughs> yeah so like he knew me from seeing sulfur media city a couple of times uh he's a bit bit older than me he must be in his like late 40s 50s now 
Um, but he'd been asked for this like big one night only show in um, Liverpool, the Casimir. It was just going to be like a night of Sun Ra tributes, like um, you know, like regular bands from across the northwest, like doing a couple of Sun Ra covers or like something inspired by Sun Ra. What Paddy yeah. like misheard and thought was I've got to start a full Sun Ra tribute band with, you know, like fucking eight horns, a couple of drummers, um, costumes, um, and everything. And he did. And it was fucking amazing. It was, man. <laughs> it was really good. Um, I, I, because I was drafted like quite early on um, and I could read music a bit better than the other guy, Howard, I was tasked with like kind of orchestrating um, like the horn section. So like I was still like quite fresh out of uni. I still had like the skills. I did composition. So now I have to like notate um, and that kind of stuff. So like that helped me kind of ingratiate into everybody because I was a bit intimidated. Like first of all, to be working with Paddy, he's you know like a fucking octopus on stage. He can play the drums, he can play the electric fucking glockenspiel. He can play a synthesizer with his foot. I don't know. Yeah. Like, he, it was already a bit intimidating and then like we practiced at this guy's house called graham like, and i didn't find out till like after that like he was the guy from 808 state he was like you know fucking mad acid house band from the 80s or whatever but like he was just a really lovely kind of normal like bloke with you know fairly nice house yeah <laughs> space where we could practice in his house with a drum kit and everything we spent a lot of time like drinking tea and learning Sun Ra songs and then ended up like oh, I think the first gig we had like 15 people on stage as part of the band and then the last gig which we recorded as part of like a, a Howard one of the other saxophone players is like a documentary maker so he did like a documentary about being a Sun Ra tribute band with all of us um, and for part of it, we did like a big final performance. Um, can't remember where, somewhere in central Manchester, like the sun. I'm thinking, I don't know. So does this is somewhere we can we can check it out? Is it on YouTube or oh, something? Oh yeah, I, th I think it's called the Language of Ra. Language of Ra. I'll check it out. People, it's, it's people, on YouTube people who are listening, watching, check it out. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I got to see you at, um, it was called, what was that venue called um, in Shude Hill? Uh, I, don't, I think it's closed now. It was a little oh, bit... Yeah, that, that's the one I'm thinking of. Wonder uh, something. It, or... The Wonder Inn. The Wonder Inn, yeah. Wonder. Really cool. It was a bit like a little bit like Islington Mill, kind of that. We, we spent a lot of time like decorating that night as well, like putting up some papier-mâché like fucking satins and stuff. Uh, so you were in that band for about a year? Uh, 2013, 2014. Uh, yeah, it feels like we played like quite a few gigs in that time. To mm. say like we were such a big band, um, we must have played about like eight or nine, maybe ten gigs. Mm. Uh, we were all good. Uh, yeah. But then I applied for uni because I was incredibly depressed. Um, <laughs> it's just... 
I think it was around the time that uh, we you actually was living with me for about a year in Salford. Uh, I think it was longer than that, man. I think it was like two years. Was it? It was basically oh, like a building site for though. I felt so, felt so guilty, man. I was like, well, it, it didn't start off that way. I had quite an <laughs> big bedroom at one point, and then like half of it. I was like, no, nah, we're gonna shove you in this fucking box. To <laughs> oh well, man. Yeah, I got into recording when we lived together. So, like, we did the popular music and recording degree. I did yes. book all recording as part of that course, and like had absolutely no knowledge about. A sound card, what it is, um, yep. like how, why you need a, 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 what's it called? Not a grounded connection, um, a balanced connection. Like none of that shit, didn't know anything. But I'd been listening to the basement tapes by Bob Dylan quite a lot. And we just had a basement done out. So I thought I'm going to create my own basement tapes in the basement. And yeah, that's basically right. basically taught myself how to record music. And like basically that's... That's been a really important skill that I developed. And in that really basement, some shit times, yeah. In in the in the basement in uh, our house in uh, in uh, Weest Salford. I used to just go down there all night and just make weird noises. Did like a <laughs> did a, a it was like a a song by Salford Media City, but with the words of a Nepali folk song that I learned when I went out and lived in Nepal for a bit with about like 30 tracks of various guitars overdubbed various drums that i just played myself like i've i was doing some mad stuff at that time i've, I've kind of toned down a bit and stuck to one kind of genre a bit more recently <laughs> so this is yeah you you applied for um a course in the netherlands um oh well other you did you apply for a few places um, no, only uni I applied for. Um, they did a master's in American studies. And there was a course, well, like a module on the beat generation. And at the time, like, I loved all things, you know, Jack Kerouac and Neil Casty and that kind of stuff. Um, so I just thought, fuck it. I've got nothing to lose. I've been, like, pretty upset. I think I took some time off work for a bit. Um, depression, anxiety and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I, I just applied for it on a whim and I got a response within a couple of weeks, just like, yep, yeah, we'd love to have you. Amazing. And I looked into it. Um, tuition's pretty cheap over there. It was like 1,700 euros. Um, sadly, my granddad had passed away like not long before. Um, so family came into a bit of money. So that funded me for a year. Went over to a city called Nijmegen. Um, it's not a particularly big city at all, um, but it's, it's a particularly beautiful place to live. Um, I was once again in student halls, but this time 24 and living with a load of 18 year olds. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I did make some fantastic friends. Um, Marine, who was in the room next to me, like he's a cool guy. Um, my two best friends, probably, while I was living over there, were a, a British guy called Webby, who used to call me Uncle Webb, because, I don't know, late 50s or so, he's been living over there for ages, but he's from uh, Rotherham, and we met in the Irish pub, and he'd always buy me a drink, whenever I was there. <laughs> um, 
So he was my best mate, and Rob, like, he's another guy about the same age. Like, you know, we just spent a lot of time drinking. When I wasn't reading books, when I wasn't writing essays, I was drinking, and mostly at the Irish bar, and annoying quite a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually managed to get over there, didn't I, for like uh, one weekend to come and see you, and and uh, it was really, I really enjoyed it, yes. And nice little city and i've never been to place to live never been to the netherlands before so it was a nice experience um we managed i think we went to a show didn't we in some warehouse it was like some weird like like almost like a rave but like it was a bit like islington mill as well do you remember that you took me mm -hmm. to some like little warehouse we we cycled was it brable maybe i can't remember the name Tony of it complex. Uh, and that whole weekend, we were the whole weekend we were singing a Toto song repeatedly. Do you remember that? We just kept going. We were just doing that the whole weekend, like cycling around Nijmegen. I was like, this is fucking awesome. Yeah, thanks for that, man. It was still got the bike. Still got it. You've got me Dutch bike, brought it home with me. So how, how did you how did you how did you find the course and that? Did you enjoy it? And um, it's a bit similar to my first year at um, Salford, to be honest. Like I felt massive imposter syndrome um, from like the very first lesson. I hadn't studied American studies before. I don't particularly know what it is. It's still, like it's so broad and vague. Um, a lot of like like the musicology stuff a lot of very heavy kind of dense topics and you were given mounds and mounds of reading to do every week and i just felt out of my place um i remember going seeing the professor uh professor hans buck he's right cool dude um really old well not really old but like he's just retired like you know <laughs> You could tell he's not too far away from retirement. But, like, really kind, warm, lovely professor. And he's like, nah, I know you're finding it difficult, but, like, just stick it out for at least, like, this first term. See how it goes. I'm sure you're going to do fine. That's anyway, nice. I, yeah. I found, like, a few people to be, like, quite cliquey on the course. Um, I can't speak Dutch. Um, believe me, I've tried. Like, really fucking dry but like it's it's so similar to english that even if i try and fumble like through a couple of dutch sentences people would just reply to me in english because they could tell that like i can't really speak dutch so i was never really given the opportunity to listen but they still kept asking me why i couldn't speak dutch that that's a whole separate thing <laughs> um but a couple of people on my course were like quite cliquey and you know just simple things like everybody's talking in dutch like while you stood outside a classroom or like in a break time and it's like mm. man i'd love to fucking join in with you um all the lessons been taught in english but i can't i just can't interact with you and i don't know if you're doing it like purposely to just because i was a bit bolshy mm. um we, like quite often some of the lessons that we'd have would be like just an opportunity to debate and argue different points about like a specific topic 
Um, we did like foreign policies um, and foreign relations, um, uh, different like racial issues, um, politics, all of these kind of things. And I was coming from like a pretty I can't say like strict or like orthodox Marxist because I just haven't read enough Marx to like say that I'm a Marxist. But like, you know, coming from that like very left, more left than left of centre mm. uh, kind of viewpoint. And like, I, I got pretty good at it. Like, I was pretty good at debating. Um, and everybody seemed to have like a kind of more centre left to kind of liberal bias. A couple of guys, like I think they supported Trump or whatever. Like, but he was one of my good mates. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Besides the point, um, I never truly felt um, like uh, what's the opposite of out of place. I uh, never fe- really truly felt included. Mm. Um, like on my course in most of like what i'd consider my friendship groups um there was a community around uh, a local arts cafe um that i'd put on like you know weird sound arts one night and um like installations or exhibitions you know like arts place but like you could volunteer there and if you volunteered there you'd like get a couple of free beers or cheap beers so like I just thought it was like an excuse to like see lots of crazy weird art. Like one time it was this Danish guy and a Parisian girl and like they just put a tape player on, stripped naked, started painting themselves white and then like running around drawing things on the floor. Like that's the kind of like level of stuff, you know, about four people watching. Yeah. Uh, including me from the bar. Um, that, that that was the kind of stuff that like they'd put on and I figured like if a place is going to put that kind of stuff on I want to meet the people who are putting it on because yeah. they're going to be fucking weirdos like me um, but even amongst the weirdos I never truly felt like <laughs> because like I'd, I'd have all these great conversations about like art and aesthetics and like um you know, whatever. But then I'd be like, "All right, it's uh, it's four o'clock. I've got to get to the pub because I'm watching Forest. They're on the <laughs> telly tonight." And just talking That's to really... these mortified like goths and stuff. <laughs> oh man, That's great. Uh, so you graduated. You came back to to the UK, um, and you moved, moved back, back to parents, back to Bestwood Village. Back to Bestwood um, Village, yep. And that was tough. I was pretty low after I came back. Uh, you know, I'd been on this high for a year. I hadn't, um, you know, like I, I wasn't worried particularly about anything apart from work. Like, just mm. get get your work in. Uh, my granddad died like just bef- just after I handed my thesis in, and I was going. Uh, I was going to see him in the hospital like as soon as I moved back to Bestwood Village like mum and dad went on holiday for a few weeks in um, July, August um, while granddad was dying in the hospital and basically like I was just finishing off my thesis so mm. it was a case of like write go to the hospital, write again drink a couple of pints before you go to bed and that was it 
um, you know, sadly he passed away. It's fine. Like, um, but then I graduated and now I've got an MA. I can put Nathaniel Mason, MA. <laughs> and I sign like checks or whatever. I don't know. Um, and I, I had this idea that like, this means I'm obviously going to get a really good job now. Um, this, this was just at the time that, uh, Jeremy Corbyn was becoming leader of the Labour Party. And I've been, yeah. I've been a long time member of the Labour Party. Um, my granddad was, he's like probably my biggest political inspiration. Both my parents were, um, and Jeremy Corbyn became leader. And I thought like, Oh, there's, there might be a future for me here. Like I'll figure like now's the time that I get really involved with the Labour Party, um, with my trade union at the time. Um, I've applied for no end of jobs with the Labour Party. I've never even like, had a fucking had a sniff. <laughs> interview. Uh, <laughs> I've had a few interviews for union jobs, but there's always somebody else with more experience. Um, so that was tough. And I eventually settled for a, a job working at a college for people with learning disabilities. Um, minimum wage. And first week or second week um either way i'd not been there long and one of my colleagues was taking me around um to meet a few people from different departments that i've not met before mm -hmm. uh, and i met uh joe and my colleague was like this is joe he's union man by like, union man Union man, <laughs> so like I'd I'd been reading loads about labour. Um, I did a couple of essays about like a couple of American labour struggles in Colorado. Um, you know, it's something that's always been around me. I've always been a trade union member, but like you could see like there was like a, a glint in my eye when like I met him. It's like union rep. It's like you look excited. Uh, do you want to become a union rep? <laughs> so like the day I signed up, like it took about two weeks for my union card to get there. And then like straight away, I signed the papers to become a union rep. Wow. Cool. Um, so that was for unison. Um, it's definitely something that's like, you know, I'd like to think defined or like helped me define who I am and, um, you know, the values I hold and the things that I'm prepared to like dedicate my time to. Yeah. But my God, it got fucking difficult at some point. At one point I was leading like pay negotiations for about 600 members of staff and like wow. all the other union reps were ill or like unable oh. to make it. And like, I was just feeling the weight of the world on my shoulders. That's horrific. Um, <laughs> it, you know, and then there's like kind of, the day-to-day -day stuff of being a union rep, like dealing with people who are facing the sack or um, going through rounds of redundancies, like that's that's not good. Like that's sometimes like there's very little that you can do. And it's about like managing, um, managing expectations. And that's really disappointing. And I think that shows that like the state of labor relations in this country is fucking abysmal 
Mm. Um, you know, the Tories are planning more attacks on things like the Working Time Directive. Uh, they want people to be able to work more than 48 hours a week. Who the fuck wants to work 48 hours a week? That's... 40 hours is already too much, my opinion. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, I think yeah. I think just, just to interject, like, when Corbyn was... Uh, appointed the leader of the Labour Party. Um, and there was this kind of groundswell, what's the word, groundswell of uh, huge kind of optimism, hope started to sort of yeah. rise rise up. And, and for well, myself I've, personally I've as well. I've been a, a Labour supporter. Um, you know, I've been a member since 2010, the day after um, the 2010 election I joined. Um, but... You know, all through Ed Miliband, like, I'd defend him, but I never felt inspired by him. No, no. I didn't think he was going to, like, take on the world and, um, you know, put some people in their fucking places. And then all of a sudden there was this guy who I'd never heard of before. Um, no, I don't think anybody had. I remember putting a bet on... Um, it was the day after the odds were 500 to 1. It went down to, like, 36 to 1. But, like, that's the most money I've ever, like, made on a bet. I've made, like, you know, £100. Yeah. On Jeremy Corbyn. Um, but, like, finally, there was just, like, an honest man. An honest man. He's not going to bullshit you. Um, he stands for what he believes in. And the media crucified him. Because they can't ever let that get near power. And it's... I'm very fucking... I've been very nihilistic recently, to be honest. Like, the state that the Labour Party's in, I don't know why I bother giving my money to them. Um, I think a lot of people friend, less recently with yeah, what's happened. Yeah, my friend is standing to be my local councillor for Labour um, in the upcoming election, so I'll probably, like, give that a shot and, you know, go out and help him. But the Labour Party's had a lot of my time over the past five years, and I've been met with lots and lots of disappointments along the way. Mm. Yeah. By people who should know better and do better. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, we could really go into that. Um, but this is about Nat Mason, not uh, the state of the politics in the UK. But you know, at the same time, it is important to talk about talk about it because I think that's kind of what I want my podcast to be as well. It's like it's been a big part of me for the past five years or so. Um, you know, again, like that really helped me root into living in Hucknall again. Like I didn't, I hadn't connected with a lot of people for a long time, and I just started going to like Labour Party meetings. But like in Hucknall, we had a really healthy core of um, like socialists and like young socialists in particular. So like I've made some good friends from there. Um, you know, we, we like to go for a pint after. Uh, meeting on a Wednesday night back when you could go to the pub that was <laughs> um, but yeah that, that's really helped me like become part of the community and stuff in Hucknall um, yeah. but I don't know I've, I've lived here for a, a few years now I might have to move closer to the city at some point and things are open again so in terms of going back to mu musically you um you joined a band uh, called Sun Party, uh, or was the band was the band formed? At, uh, we all kind of formed yeah, together it, at the same time, or 
they'd already done a couple of gigs before me. Um, just as a four piece, like guitar, bass, drums, and vocals. Um, oh God, how did it go? So I'm, my best friend from Nottingham originally, he's been living in Newcastle since 2008, called Bernard. Um, he told me about this venue in Nottingham called JT Saw. And he said, my mate's band is playing there. I'd met her before. Um, but he told me like, you should go down and see it. From there, I met a guy called Alex Hale at the gig. He was just like talking to me and friendly. And within like six months, I was playing saxophone in his wedding band that he was the singer of. So just from one friend saying I should go to one place, I've met like another great friend, but also the guy who runs JT Saw is a guy called Phil and he plays guitar in Slum Party and is a great production audio engineer guy. Um, JT Saw's got an amazing studio, he's just had it all refurbed over lockdown. Uh, Sleaf and Mods have recorded the past couple of records there. I think that just got to number one. Nice. But anyway, like he, me, Phil and Alex were all playing in this wedding band together. Um, and Phil obviously realised that I, I do kind of know how to play the saxophone, but I do like to be a bit like a more wild and squawky free jazz kind of when I play. Uh, and he just decided, let's put two and two together. My band with this weird squawky saxophone uh and it, it ended up working out quite well and you <laughs> what you describe the music as like kind of post-punk party pop yeah, i'd i'd just say post-punk post um it's yeah post-punk who were your uh kind of uh influences if you were to name some some bands or artists uh, so, like, obvious comparisons would be like, um, you know, we had a bit of Minutemen about us, we had a bit of, um, I can't think, uh, what's he called, James Chance and the Contortions, or is it James White, James Black, I don't know, um, stuff like Pigbag, I don't know. Uh, uh so... On the funky end, we a bit gang of four. Yeah, yeah, there's uh, a bit, yeah. I, I would say that, yeah, definitely. But it, it was quite erratic. Like, we didn't really deal with, like, verse-chorus, verse-chorus kind of stuff. It'd be, like, quite jumpy, like, scratchy, big leaps from one thing to another. But also, like, quite funky at the same time. We had a really good bass player, Don. Yeah. So how was um, how was how was it overall? And um, tell me a bit about. Uh, um, well, I, th the band. I thought I was going to be given like free reign, um, but like at the start, because they knew that I was like quite good at music and like a new theory and stuff. Like we'd spend a lot of time like really working out what my parts were, and it felt a bit like, you know, music by committee, like everything that I was doing at the time. Like, you know, eventually I ended up getting it and, like, you know, we, we all started learning what we were all good at and what we could play. Um, so I think we came up with some really interesting music. Um, I still put it in every now and then. Got the records. 
And you've released uh, how many? Was it you've done two albums? Two albums, a seven-inch EP, and a cassette. And uh, did you? I know I managed to catch you. Um, Sounds from the other city. So that's the music festival um, in Salford um, mm. annual music festival. Um, I saw you at that in two thousand and um, eighteen. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, was I mean, sick about like three hours before that. Like, <laughs> you were sick, vomiting. Yeah. I was so fucking like dehydrated and hungover from the night before. <laughs> so you, were you were you touring at that point? Was that like a little tour, like part uh, of that? I think we'd got it booked into like a weekend thing. Oh, okay. We had yeah. The night before in Leeds or something. Yeah. And so, you're no longer part of uh, Slum, pa Slum Party because uh, that would have been that's pretty much coming up to um, 2020, 2021. Uh, we're getting yeah, I quit in um, not last. Yeah, I think last summer. No, 2019. 2019. Yeah, possibly. Um, I, I, we were recording the second album, and yes, yeah. I, I just wasn't enjoying it as much. Like, um, nothing personal against the people I was playing with, but like, it just wasn't the kind of music that I wanted to do, and like, everything that I was suggesting, it felt to me like. It just wasn't being taken on board or like wasn't being considered yeah and you know that that's fine like that's five people in a room like all trying to shape something and like i know i like a bit of a bit more on the oddball and kind of weird side of things but, yeah yeah and so yeah. now you're doing um your own kind of i guess self-titled self-titled project stuart pierce <laughs> well, Stuart Pierce took started um, while I was in Slum Party. Um, basically, I bought a synthesizer for the first time in I don't know, like twenty sixteen or something, um, and I discovered that like you can program them to like play themselves. So that was a bit of a revelation because like I've been struggling like all while I was living in the Netherlands. I, I never really like played music, didn't play in a band or anything. Um, and then when I first moved home, like it was a while before, like I started meeting people and like, you know, meeting Phil and Alex and stuff and playing with them. Um, so when I realized that like I could get a band and they would all do exactly what I tell them to do and never play out of time because you can get a drum machine and that's better than a drummer <laughs> and you can get another synthesizer and that's better than any keyboard player because it'll all play in time together at one button and i thought there's something in this <laughs> so so the first gig oh it was like a mountain of keyboards i had like a an old 70s transistor organ with another big like digital synthesizer on top of that you had like a 
I drilled some holes in the back of this old organ so I could put up like a stand that my mate who's a joiner made for me so I could put another synthesizer on top of it. Then I had a table at the side of me with a drum machine, one with a sampler and one with a polyphonic synthesizer. And like that was all, I'd written like six songs and I was just going to play all the instruments all by myself and, you know, whatever fucking beat that the rhythm machine's playing. And I thought it was better than a lot of other people thought. <laughs> but uh, it, it yeah. got me started, didn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. From that, uh, there's a guy who used to live around the corner from me called Joe who started playing bass with me because I used to go to school with his brother. His brother was in my year. And he just said, like, my, my brother's doing music at college and that. Like, why don't you invite him round? thought yeah fair enough (laughs) so i just invited him round and he started playing bass and he was also like listening to what i told him to do (laughs) just just like the synthesizer i could say could you just play this and he would (laughs) so i thought i'm I'm having you (laughs) so he still plays with us he's great bassist um uh and it's kind of developed from there like it'd, it'd be a couple of different iterations like i'd always be chopping and changing gear like um different drum machines different synthesizers that kind of thing so like each gig has been different sometimes joe played guitar mostly bass uh we've got a drummer now uh, my mate craig like i auditioned him on synthesizer he played his first gig on guitar and now he's a drummer <laughs> The carousel uh, to, of, of uh, and then we've got uh, Adam, uh, the guy who put on probably like my most successful gig, um, doing Stuart Pierce. Like he put us on, but he turns out he plays guitar, um, and we've got very similar like kind of philosophies, interests, tastes. So like it's been it's been going well, and then all of a sudden, lockdown happened. Ah uh, yes, and yes. we've not been able to rehearse. And that's really rubbish, if you ask me. So just to dagger slightly, Stuart Pearce, for those who don't know, is a legendary uh, Nottingham Forest and other clubs football player. Um, England's greatest left back. Yeah, so you are, you are, you are an avid um, Forest, Nottingham Forest fan supporter. And uh, he's Long one of your so idols. Great. I would say long suffering supporter. Yeah. Um, I've, I first named myself Stuart Pierce because I was working at a school, um, primary school, and then one of the kids like said, "I found you on Facebook." I just thought, well, that's weird. I'm definitely not going to use my real name on Facebook anymore. Um, yeah. So it became Stuart Pierce, just because I, I like Stuart Pierce. I thought he was pretty cool. And then just before I moved to the Netherlands, actually, um, my friend Manoli was putting a gig on. Um, he asked me to perform saxophone while he like strapped some Wii remotes to me and like that edited some parameters while I was moving. It was crazy shit. Um, but he he asked me like what to bill it as because like it was pretty much my last night before I moved to the Netherlands. I moved to Nottingham the night before and then to the Netherlands like the day after. Um, so I said Billy is a tribute to Stuart Pearce. 
and I wrote this lovely like poem. Um, <laughs> I ain't got it anywhere, but like it, it, it were a good football poem. I put some good <laughs> words in there um, before I started like you know honking on the saxophone, and we had a drummer playing with us as well, as well as the electronics. But that was billed as a tribute to Stuart Pearce, and since then it's been like it's a pretty good name, isn't it? I might just start calling every bit of music that I do Stuart Pierce from now on. So, question is, does sure Stuart Pierce know that he that there's a guy playing music I under his name? Highly doubt it. <laughs> not at all famous in the slightest. Um, as a band, we've only played one gig, uh, and that was playing three cover songs for this annual night in Nottingham called the Christmas Covers. What's, um, what songs did you play? Uh, 2468 Motorway by the Tom Robinson Band. Classic. Um, totally Wired by The Fall, which is great pretending to be Mark E. Smith on stage. <laughs> um, and 1999 by Prince. Lovely. I know two of those. Um, two out of three. Yeah. Which one don't you know? The first one. <laughs> Is that shameful? Uh, two, four, six, eight. Never too late. Me and my radio on through the night. You never heard that? I can't believe... I, I've not heard it, no. I'm ashamed. I, I bet you have. I probably have. Maybe uh, just... As the closing music for whenever you put this episode up, put two, four, six, eight motorway. Okay, yeah. I play I play a snip, but see the the issue of playing other people's music is I get into you know all that copyright bullshit stuff. So <laughs> it's easier right, to say just. I wrote it. Okay, maybe <laughs> you've got a recording of the cover you did. I can just. Uh, <laughs> I think someone recorded on a phone. Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> so there's one question that I've always uh, been asking all my guests. Uh, in your opinion, what do you consider selling out? What is what is selling out? Mm. Selling out is making money doing stuff that you don't enjoy for money that you don't need. Mm. I like that. So, you know, I've got absolutely no beef with um, any musician who struggles for years and years and then ends up getting a song played on I don't know, a fucking T-Mobile advert and like that funds them so they can, you know, finally buy a house or fucking like put the band together and tour again after 30 years. Like absolutely nothing wrong with that. No problem with people who make their money from like just writing advertising music or jingles or anything like that. But it's just... You know, there's so much stuff that just doesn't need to be made. Mm. Just like when music has been reduced to like pure commodity, collection of signs, nothing signified. Like just, it, it, it irritates me. Like, um, you know, it's like a, a paint by numbers book of how to write a hit song nowadays. Yeah, I suppose, I guess if you were in, in say you were a huge artist and um, Amazon came along and said we'll offer you this this deal, pay you this much, you know, huge chunk of money. I mean, in a I've, hypothetical, I've situation. not given any money to 
Amazon in about seven or eight years now, so like they're not getting, they're not going to fucking give me no money neither. Like, I mean, that's that's the that's the that's the difficult kind of tricky hypothetical situation. It's like, I mean, but uh, I mean, you're going to be a different person if you got to the point where you're being offered a. I don't get don't get me wrong. If like Sony want to give me loads of money or fucking I don't know like EMI or whatever, like, do they even exist anymore? Absolutely, I'd be fucking well for it. Just not Amazon. Virgin? I spend too much time in the fucking labour movement <laughs> to like, you know, <laughs> capitulate to the grossest extent of fucking crony capitalism. <laughs> what about Virgin? Richard Branson. Uh, yeah, would you would you turn turn down a multi million dollar deal? Brands were signed to Virgin back in the day. Oh, is it like Sex Pistols and uh, Tubular Bells? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I just wanted to, I I actually I actually have one question from um, from from someone called Orchid Arcade on Instagram. I, I think I know who that is. Who is it then? That, that's James Med. James Med. So James Med or Orchid Arcade asked, I understand the wheels go round and round, but what is it that drives that motion? I don't have an answer to that. But can I give you another something that's a bit similar to that? Go for it. D David Lynch was talking about um, like directing and creating art. And he said, he had a donut in his hand. He says, look at the donut. Don't look at the hole inside. So just look at the donut. Look for all the good stuff. Right, don't look for the void that's in the middle. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> what are your what what's your apart from obviously waiting for this pandemic to uh to finish or pass, uh what what are your kind of goals and ambitions for the next five, ten years? What do you want to do musically, politically? To be honest. Like um I don't anticipate I'm going to be fucking, you know, um, headlining Rock City anytime soon. Um, I just like making stuff. Like if if I've got a bunch of people who I get on with, they ha they like my ideas and they're happy to like help me play my music that I write. More than happy if we don't make another penny from it. Um, mm. I've only ever lost money from being a musician. <laughs> saxophones are expensive you know and <laughs> gigs don't pay yeah well, like, gigs don't pay if you play the type of music that i want to play so like it's always been a hobby um again tim france knocked it out of me like from being any thoughts of being a professional musician so i, I just <laughs> do for enjoyment man dreams <laughs> if, if i feel like i'm expressing myself in some way um if i feel like i'm exploring things that interest me like I don't care if there's 10 or 20 people and I'm only getting, you know, petrol money home. Mm. How have you been, uh, I guess, coping with the with the current situation and um, what have you been up to during the lockdowns and restrictions due to COVID? Oh, I was drinking a lot. Yeah. I think we all were. Um, that's kind of toned down. I've been doing the dry January thing. Uh 
just trying to keep busy in the evenings. I've bought a PS4 recently, <laughs> so that's taken up a lot of my time. Um, I've been recording various bits and bobs of music. Um, we've kind of got the set down to one point where, like, if I just keep adding songs and songs and songs, like, you know, we're still, like, learning, like, a few of them. So, like, I'm, I don't want to fucking overload people. Um, I don't know, man. I'm just waiting for it to be over and I can see my mates and hug people again. I can't wait for that. Have a pint at pub. Oh, mate, I'm so the, the The great popular British pastime, you know, really important part of our culture, I think. Well, thanks so much, Nat. Um, it's been great. Um Lovely to see you again. Love to see you, and um, yeah, good luck with the project, the Stuart Pierce project, and and hopefully, yeah, hope, well, hopefully, as soon as things like uh, open up, we're going to be able to practice a bit more. The idea was to kind of put a record out as soon as possible, but watch the space, know. Stuart Pierce. Yeah. All right, man. Thanks very much. Shall cool. see you later. I, I really need a piss, so I'm. All gonna, right. Like, <laughs> See you later, man. Thanks. Yeah, I made it. Mm.